everyone, welcome back to Filmcraft. Today we have a very special episode where I interview Mr. CJ Wally. He's a screenwriter based out of England with a movie Break Even that came out in 2020 and an upcoming movie Double Threat, which is set to release more than likely this year. He's also the founder of Script Revolution, which is a website where you can host your screenplays, connect with other writers and executives, and they've even had quite a few success stories where writers have had their stuff optioned and sold it's a really really great service and we get into a lot of really great stuff in this episode i think you're really gonna enjoy this cj was a fantastic guest and i would love to have him back on the show whenever he wants to be all right guys thanks for listening and enjoy cool yeah you know thanks so much for having me on oh thanks for coming on i appreciate it very much um so to frame it for the audience, this whole thing, or the reason that I decided to reach out to you, I'd known about you in Script Revolution before, but I read one of your blog posts and I was like, this is gold. I dig wow. this so much. So I was wondering if before we get into like your origins and that entire, actually, no, let's start with the origins. We'll get to the blog post after. We'll, we'll do the little intro first. Okay. Um, so just for the audience, do you want to give them a rundown of who you are and whatnot? Okay, yeah, so I, I'm CJ Wally. I'm a working screenwriter based in rural Staffordshire in the UK where people bring their tractors home from work and park them in the street. I started writing in 2012 and uh, I've got a couple of films made and I run a platform called Script Revolution. Fantastic. Um, so jumping right on the heels of that, what made you want to get into screenwriting? Like, What do you think made you the filmmaker that you are? Um, desperation, panic in a midlife crisis was uh, <laughs> the catalyst. I, I got in quite late. I was about 32, which seems like a baby now in reflection. I'm 41. Um, yeah, 2012 had a complete and utter mental breakdown and ridiculously turned to writing as therapy, the absolute worst thing you can do. And that's <laughs> what kicked this all off. And I, I found what I, I my real passion you know my creative calling and it's completely absurd because I'm a dyslexic who couldn't pay any attention at school and hated English and never really wrote anything until my adulthood no way I'm actually the same way you couldn't pay me to pay attention to high school I still mix up words when I'm writing but I love it um so if you don't mind me asking what did you do before writing I was a print and web design um, freelancer um, and marketing consultant. So, um, like I said, terrible attention at school, a very vivid imagination. I think that's very common with, um, you know, writers who want to write fiction. We can't pay attention to academia. We live in our imaginations. I needed to express that. I found writing hard due to struggling to actually physically write and being embarrassed about my spelling and typos. And um, I turned to drawing and illustration and 3D and things like that. And when you do that at school and you're like an arty kid who likes to play with the crayons, they kind of go, oh, graphic design, that's the same, isn't it? And you do graphic design. Graphic design is just engineering <laughs> with pictures. And there's no creativity to it before. There's no real freedom of expression. There's no artistic value. And it just slowly ground away at me, Matt, just, you know, and it was lucrative for a while, but then it all kind of fell apart, you know, as the freelance, as the nature of freelance business. And, and I was sick and tired of it, to be frank. 
You know, I I totally hear you on that. I didn't do graphic design before I started getting into screenwriting, but I did work for Pepsi for a number of years. And the same thing where you mentioned in like the money was good. You know, I could live fairly comfortably, especially considering the age that I was. But when it really came down to it, it was kind of like just a slow erosion of the creative soul. And eventually it was like, mm. I got to get the fuck out of here and I got to do this writing thing if I'm ever going to give it a chance. And once I started doing that, the world just seemed a little brighter, you know? I wish I could say the same with the brightness thing. It took me to a very dark place, but that said, it took me to a place I needed to go and demons that I had to face. And yes, if you're an idealistic person, if you're a dreamy person, if you have what it takes to be a writer, as in, you know, you, 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 you're a philosopher, you care about life, you care about emotion, a corporate job, as good as and stable as that corporate job might be, it will eat away at you slowly. Definitely, definitely. And just out of sake of personal curiosity, so like I mentioned, I'm dyslexic as well. I swear mm. I will read my scripts 10 times and find yeah. new typos every time. I, I'm mm-hmm. so blind to them. How did you come to, I don't know, make terms with or, you know, learn to fix those kind of typo, like the small little semantic things in your scripts? I, I didn't. Um, I came to accept who I am. I came to accept that as a dyslexic, I have a tremendous amount to offer in terms of, you know, where my strengths are, what I can bring to fiction writing. And that is an incredibly vivid imagination. The producers I work with, you know, they say if there's if there's three ways to do something, CJ will come up with a fourth. (laughs) And that's how our minds work. So, you know, for me, it was a case of I'm not taking part in a spelling bee. I'm not doing technical writing. This isn't a legal document. The superficiality of the script in terms of how it's formatted and the technical writing isn't relevant to how good a story or how good a film it is. So I stopped caring and I stopped caring about people that care about that, if that if you understand that. There's, oh, there's definitely. A, there's a pretension around that. And what was wonderful for me is finding out how little that really holds you back once you actually get into the working side of things and once you get past all these, you know, these snarky, pretentious gatekeepers. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of the people listening to this are going to find great comfort in that. Good. Um, so I want to jump off a little bit for what you mentioned. You started doing it writing in a way where you could actually get things produced like what was it like being in england and doing this did you have to really go to america first before some of your scripts became real like what was the process for you there was a time when i was in america with my now ex-wife and um we were driving from the grand canyon to vegas in a grab a blue convertible Mustang and we were driving into the evening heading west and it was one of those kind of beautiful 1980s cyberpunk sunsets on the horizon coming up you know lifting above the um, the, the west coast and there were signs to Los Angeles and there was part of me which really wanted to just keep my foot to the board and just keep going and go to LA and try and make this happen And that's how I'd been feeling for years. But I didn't, you know, I turned off the highway. I went to Vegas as per my destination. And I always said to myself, I'm not going to go to L.A. and try and start a career. I'm going to try and pull people to me where I am with my authenticity. So what I did was, you know, I kind of gave up twice. I felt like I was never going to make it. 
and I didn't have what it takes because I was, you know, I'm a quirky and unusual writing writer. I don't fit in. I can't win competitions. I can't get good evaluations. I just, I just, you know, and, and, and I can't get good peer reviews from people. And um, I, I kind of giving up was really liberating because then I really started to write what I cared about, which was these kind of really low budget, single location or minimal location thrillers, very Tarantino-esque. That's where I wanted to be. And of course, as life works, the harder you push away against something, the more it wants to pull back towards you. Bish, bash, boom. I draw in a producer who's, you know, lifelong producer who's had a number one box office hit to his name. Well, that's pretty nice. It was pretty sweet. Yeah, Shane Stanley, is a, he's, a, he's a legend. He's a living legend. He's been everywhere, done everything. And um, by sheer coincidence and will of, of, of positive thinking, he got in touch with me and incidentally fell in love with my blogging. That's what he saw. He saw my blogs and thought, hey, I like the way this guy thinks. I wonder if his writing lives up to his blogging. Well, thankfully, he picked the right scripts because it did. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. All right, so that actually kind of seamlessly brings me to two things that I want to ask you. Um, when you started getting your first movies off the ground, so you've been writer and producer on these movies. Did you have any inclination to direct or are you just like, I want nothing to do with that part of it? And you know, yeah, sorry. Sorry, and since you work with Shane Stanley a lot, he seems to be your mm -hmm. primary director. What's it like working with one person that I would assume you know is going to direct these things? How does that influence the way you write and whatnot? Oh, it's it's a beautiful, wonderful, comforting thing where sometimes I have to... I, a couple of weeks ago, I literally had to pinch myself because I was just like, wow, I can't believe where I am. You know, you mentioned about producing. Um, I didn't produce my first a movie, although I was very, very, very closely involved in the production of that. But then, yes, I, you know, I kind of stumbled into becoming a producing partner on the last one, and I'm I'm a producing partner on the next one. And that's that's kind of really surreal how how that's come apart come about. I I don't have any aspirations to direct, but then I never had any aspirations to produce. You know, I I think that the way things are with the breaking industries, you're kind of conditioned into this thinking of you're just the writer you're just the writer shut up wait to hear you know when you're told to jump and ask how high and that kind of got into my head so what's been really strange is to kind of be elevated purely because I just get more and more involved and I'm given the opportunity to get involved you know the relationship I have with Shane is just incredible we talk daily we were messaging back and forth um, just before this, this this podcast started, he's he's in a, a store getting his wife's phone, a new screen on his phone before he gets a vaccination. <laughs> you know, we have such close brotherly relationship. We're best friends now. Um, we are so on each other's wavelength, and that's such a wonderful thing. I kind of know what he wants. He kind of knows what I'm going to deliver. It's always exciting. And what's wonderful is because I've been so close on the production side is I know what can logistically be done. And that makes me powerful in that kind of producer-writer dual role. I think that is all fantastic. So I want to touch on the writer-producer role for a little bit. Um, I can only imagine once you start making movies that are bigger and bigger, like your first and it evolves to higher budgets and whatnot, the writer-producer role actually carries with it a lot more 
I'll say for lack of a better word, power in a really, really good way that like you mentioned, when you're writing, you know, I can logistically pull off X, Y, and Z. And maybe the set piece that I have is going to cost too much. So I shouldn't even really bother with that. Yeah. How do you find the evolution of becoming a writer producer is and what do you enjoy about it the most other than, you know, what we just mentioned? Well, what's interesting is I, I see people on forums and they talk about producing and writing and there's a lot of people who are waiting for permission, who think in a very corporate mindset, and they seem to think that the way film production works, particularly on an indie side, no, well, you know, on an indie side and particularly on a studio side, would be a better way to put it, is that you kind of get called into a meeting one day and people say, hey, now you're a producer, everything's different tomorrow, and, you know, you, you now do different things, and you know, it's nothing like that on an indie level um, because you're running and you're gunning and you you get asked questions or you jump in and you help. For instance, I think the first place I started as a, you know, on, on a, starting to think like a producer was when I was asked, well, who are we going to cast? You write strong female roles. There's a, like about four p women in the world who are allowed to be strong female um, <laughs> actors and they have to do all the blockbusters and they cost $20 million a film. You know, who's, who's affordable? And that was difficult, very, very difficult. And, you know, I had to spend a lot of time researching and suggesting people and listening to how that was going. And that was how it got me in. And then it was like... I would find a location. I'd do a lot of location scouting via Google Maps and suggest locations. I really freaked Shane out once when um, he was he was touring a it's a nail varnish factory, cosmetics factory that we were using for some scenes. And I was saying, oh, the blue barrels there, go to where the blue barrels are stored. And he's like, how do you know about the blue barrels? <laughs> and I'm like, because I'm looking on Google Street View. So go, go and have a look in that door and tell me about that loading dock. And that really freaked him out. And I think on an indie film level, if you're willing to jump in, you're willing to dig some ditches, you're willing to help with the pitching materials, you're going to sit through a, a scheduling uh, session, um, especially if you're on set and you're going to load the grip truck at 3am in the morning whilst everyone else is going. Stuff like that really matters. And if you're working with indie rats, they're going to go, hey, you know, you're useful. You're an arrow producer. And, and that's how I fell into it. Yeah, and I think that's something that's actually really undervalued, like getting your fingers into it and really saying, like, how can I help out? I, I, you know, it really does kind of stray away from the strict writing path. But when you get into really making a movie, it's infectious and it's so much mm. fun. Not that writing isn't. It totally is. But to get in there and, like, you know, put your feet to the pavement, it, it takes mm. on a whole other life, I find. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not a huge fan of pre-production. Pre-production's tough. No one likes pre-production. But I was just reading um, the books by Linda Ops, and, you know, she did Contact and Under Siege and 
you know, a lot of of great movies. She recently did, was involved in Interstellar, and her she's got a couple of fantastic books, some of the best books out there. And in one of those is a chapter. I think it's something like on location there is temptation, and she speaks about getting out of the development offices at the studios and being on set, and how incredible it is to be there, and how addicted she became, and how that's what it became about. And I think. There's, again, people just look at the studios, you know, they're, they're sold this concept that writers are, you know, that, you know, they spray water at them if they come anywhere near the set, like, like a stray cat, you know, it's like, get out of here. And um, they're treated, you know, terribly and the actors don't want them there. And I, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, being a writer on set does confuse things a little bit. You know, some people lean into it, some people lean away from it. Um, but you realise just what an incredible camaraderie you get from that experience and this brigade that you build. And yes, on the last day, you will be exhausted. You will be tired. You will desperately want to get to the end. But the second you get there, you just think, I want to start all over again. Give me another six weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I wrapped my first feature there, it was the same thing. By the end of it, I'm like, I've lost like 20 pounds. I'm super <laughs> tired. And I'm like, I'm pretty excited to yell cut for the last time. But then mm. as soon as you do it, you're like, I want to do that again. When can we do this again? Yes, <laughs> That is exactly it. It's, it's like a marathon. And you just you want to go on that beautiful journey over and over. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to tie the the making of a movie back into writing real quick. And I wanted to ask you, out of everything you've been through, um, what's made you learn the most about writing and why is it seeing how an edit comes together? Um, you know, so writing and learning what it's all about and that experience, I went through, I've been through a decade of, you know, a really harsh mental health crisis where my life has just fallen apart at the seams in so many ways. You know, I'm a divorced middle-aged man who doesn't have a regular job, who's had to move back in with his parents. And, you know, that contrasts the image of this, you know, writer-producer who's having the time of his life. And, you know, I am in, in many ways, but that duality of existence, going through all that pain that I've been through of losing everything, has really made me in touch with the reality of, of, of existence, the human condition, what we can go through, what, you know, what, what tough times drive us through and cause us to learn. And it made me realise that, you know, good writing is medicine. You take what you've learned and you take that pain and you share that pain and you share those discoveries with other people, you know, the audience, and, and they watch your story in the form of film and feel a little bit safer more fulfilled a little bit like they share something there they don't feel so misunderstood and so that was critical to me in terms of the importance of writing and then um with the edits i with the first film with break even um it was a case of i waited and waited and waited whilst shane just slaved away in the edit but even shane's a first class editor one of the best um and I didn't see a cut until I got the DVD in December. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which was a few months. I don't know where we are. I can't remember time anymore in this lockdown. <laughs> but I think it was about five or six months ago. And, um, you know, that was a really interesting experience. 
Um, I wasn't involved on that that post side, although I knew what was going on. There was it didn't feel like there was a way someone in L.A. could share the editing process with someone in the U.K. Well, on the last one on Double Threat, I've actually been much closer on the editing and I've actually been on Skype and seen the editing taking places in a few rare examples and had some inputs. And that's been really great. Um, but in the case of Double Threat, we, we brought an editor in because we need to move fast now. We have a... We, we're on a mission, dude. We we ain't hanging <laughs> about for anything. So, yeah, I believe we, we, we pretty much have a have a cut ready of that one, which is super exciting. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And I got to say, it's super cool to talk so openly about, you know, the mental struggles and everything. I think that's something that a lot of people, including myself, again, will feel great comfort in. So thank you and oh, good yeah. on you for speaking freely I, uh, about that yeah i i do i think more people do now um i think like i think creatives and artists we we suffer in our hearts you know usually from a very young age and we turn to writing most people as a form of escapism because we just we struggle with the world and that's so much more common now and being an artist is so much harder now and we have to go out there and we have to say, you know, this is hard, this is difficult, I struggle. And yeah, I have my, my bad days now. You know, I had a sleepless night last night. It's, it, I don't think it's smooth for anybody. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's funny you should mention uh, escapism too. I just did a pitch deck for my next feature I'm trying to get off the ground. And with my producer, we're like, well, what's the best way to synthesize this? And I'm like, honestly, I want to make messaged entertaining escapism like i think if you can do mm. those three things in a movie you're sitting in a pretty good spot so i couldn't agree more on the escapism that's a great of way it. of putting it that that's what this is all about you know matt you you you're on the money messaged um entertaining escapism that's that's the fundamentals of what we're trying to do and it's weird how many writers and filmmakers lose sight of that Definitely. And let's just follow that for a little bit. So one thing that I think a lot of writers kind of get preoccupied with, if you were to take that as like a mantra, is the message part of it. And like, I fully, fully think that movies should have good messages. And I love strong themes and everything. But I think sometimes what tends to fall by the wayside for people that are at least up and coming is the entertaining part of it. Mm. And you know, you always hear that rule of screenwriting, like there's only one rule, just don't be boring. Is there? Mm. What do you think about that whole kind of you know, double model or whatever you want to call that. I think that it would benefit a lot of writers, especially if they've been in this for a while, to go back to the first script they ever wrote and try and hook into the energy they had when they first got into this. Because I think most people go in fundamentally entertaining. They might lose track, they might get a little bit lost, they might not know how to write an entertaining scene and structure scenes and story and and play with people's emotions. But most people have an energy and what I see a lot is that energy gradually gets sucked out of them as they get told that there's more and more rules, that they need to be liked, they need to be validated, they need to please as many people as possible. And then it becomes a very introspective process. That's what I've seen where writers are trying to impress other writers with things like their technical skills or their formatting. And, you know, or their, maybe it would be their structure, you know, in some cases. But they've lost that vibe, that energy, that voice, 
you know they've lost the artistic side they 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 don't want to pick up the guitar anymore and just go for it and just thrash away at it they've become a little bit too rigid and dull yeah i would say that is totally fair and i think there's a real danger in that where if you spend all of your time you know on on forums and like i'm a, i love reddit screenwriting like the screenwriting subreddit i'm a big fan of it but i do think there's a danger of like if all you do is go on there and kind of measure yourself comparative to what you see on there, you do run that risk of my script is now strictly for the eyes of writers when really like you want this script to pretty much just be a blueprint to go on and be a movie and entertain people in the future. Um, do you see a lot of that in writers? Oh, screenwriting's an interesting one because that that's a community which can fluctuate between being quite a snarky group depending on who's become very prominent or who gets upvoted a lot um or a very very positive group and screenwriting communities in general can be can be like that um it's really important to find somewhere that that's really positive and um and cares about the craft as an art form i i keep saying to people you know we're artists this is art and it's amazing how many people get angry at that suggestion Really, and it's like yes, and so many people seem to get angry at the thought that this is, you know, this is this is something more than hitting some jumping through some kind of technical hoops or satisfying some kind of criteria, and this fear, this fear of subjectivity, and this 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 refusal to accept that you are going to polarize people and polarizing people doesn't matter polarizing people is actually a good sign the mediocrity is terrifying that's a, that's a really really bad place to end <laughs> up and this obsession with getting scores and pleasing people and what i found generally the the most toxic thing is where you've got like a few elders sort of self-appointed elders in a community and they have to comment on everything absolutely everything they have to they've got nothing better to do than to sit there all day and reply to everything and they get bored and they get frustrated and they get short they get curt they build themselves up and they can be very destructive people because they start to leave quite snarky and short replies to to others they get quite curt and dismissive fall out with one another and writers we're snarky enough at Anyway, we don't need to make it any worse with the internet. And I think it's wonderful when you can find a really, really positive group. And, you know, they are out there. It's just that um, they're few and far between. That actually segues really nicely into the article of yours that I just read. The one where you said there's two kinds of writers. There's writers that just read like crazy. And then there's writers that write. And I thought that that's kind of beautiful. And like, I'll be the first to admit that I enjoy reading scripts. Um, I do think mm -hmm. that it makes me a better writer. But I do think that there also is that danger of all you do is read scripts. So I was wondering if you could, I mean, we'll link it to the audience too, but if you could talk a little bit about that article and if your feelings have changed on it at all, at all, and like where your headspace is with it now. Well, it's an article I wrote a couple of years, it's 2019 I wrote it, and I was really starting to notice a lot of, a lot of change in the advice that I was seeing. It's it's unusual for people to stick around in the screenwriting break-in community because um, there's such a high rate of churn. And anyone that's stuck around for more than even two years in a community will know that after after 24 months, this, like 90% of the people who are posting have changed 
and there's like about half a dozen regulars who who stick through it. So you see the advice change as different sort of you know monthly generations of people come and go. It seems to move that fast, and I really noticed this this gradual separation where there was this peeling apart of being very very craft focused and this kind of very very lazy approach which was getting promoted a lot and almost everything every question was being replied with just read more scripts and everything was just read scripts just read screenplays read screenplays and people were saying oh i've read i've read 365 screenplays this year and i'm really proud of that and i'm going to read twice as many next year and it just became like crazier and crazier and more and more obsessive i do believe if you want to make films you should watch films you should indulge as much as possible in 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 the results of film and and love film and it's again it can be strange how many people don't actually do that and you should love art and you should love all these aspects but this idea that you can learn craft via osmosis is so limiting it just it just it doesn't make sense it makes about as much logic as thinking that watching formula 1 racing all day is going to turn you into a you know a, a grand prix driver it just <laughs> it doesn't you know i listen i listen to so much music that's my second love is finding new music because it triggers my imagination i can't play an instrument put together electronic music i couldn't structure the phrasing of of, of tracks i i don't know how to do that um because i've listened to it now i have an idea of what i like and i'm inspired but the actual craft that's something you have to go off and learn and usually be taught unless you want to do it the hard way and discover yourself so i feel i mean and, and that's just part of it that there's these two routes is route a and route b and i see a lot of people and they just read and read and read and read and they just submit to competitions 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 and evaluation services and i just think that's just so ridiculous and pointless whereas there's this route b that you can go down which is learn the craft build a career you know slowly from the bottom work at it identify your weaknesses and 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 become a stronger fundamental artist and of course above all else find your voice which is very difficult to do if you don't really search inward and 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 reduce the amount of external influence I could not agree more. I feel like we're starting to get to the script revolution, which I'm really mm. excited to, but I got two questions for you beforehand. Um, where you mentioned, you know, that earlier phase where you're really starting to get to know yourself in writing terms, you know. Um, the two questions I have for you are, what do you recommend for people in terms of how to take notes, like ingest them and find out what's important to them and find out how to apply it to their work? And just any general advice on like, I'm a writer. I've been right. I have one short I've written. How do I find my voice? What would you tell that person? So you're talking about notes that have come in via what, like feedback or from a producer? Just notes in general from anywhere. If you have different um, recommendations based off if it was a producer or a friend or a contest, then, you know, throw out whatever you got. Well, I think I think the first thing you need to do is contextualize the notes. And, and I feel that what a lot of people do is they... They, they go to the wrong place, fundamentally. So again, if you're playing death metal in your garage 
what you don't do typically is bring in some people from the local poetry club <laughs> and you know go crazy with you with you with your guitars echoing off the bare walls and jumping around with your your one man mosh pit and then ask these people like what do they think about you know the 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 huge bass riffs and, and and the elements of hair metal because they they probably don't appreciate that that's probably not what gets them going or necessarily something they care about or understand so people will do that and then like in an example these poetry types will say well you know i don't really think that the message is there and i don't really think you know you're articulating properly or you know and i'm i'm really stereotyping poetry <laughs> or just i mean um, the, the, I, I go to i go to um I go to poetry readings and there's plenty of people who are rock and roll poets around here. I'm being terribly unfair, but I do find it a pretentious thing for a lot of people. And then that person will go back and they will take that feedback to heart really seriously and then care about impressing those people. So then they, they have notes which are pulling them in a, in, a, in a really, really, really difficult direction because it's possibly very likely against where they want to go within their heart and and they're not refining their true self their authentic self they're starting to try and refine an inauthentic version of themselves so the context of the notes are really important and one of the tough things i think a lot of writers have is and i always say this the kind of person that wants to give you notes on your script on a writing forum is the last person you probably want writing notes from especially if you're an edgy writer you know who, who wants to do something that's perhaps you know anything less than pretentious so people will get these notes from these you know quite often quite sort of toxic and troll like people and then they'll think oh i have to make all these changes and and guess what they conflict with one another and they refuse to accept the subjectivity or the limitations of people's viewpoints, the narrow-mindedness. So I think you understand context first and then you have to understand what you're trying to do and what your voice is and you will see the notes that make sense and the notes that make sense are the ones that you've probably been ignoring in your head and, 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 and shouting down. They're the notes that me that you go, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. I felt like it. I lay awake at night and I, I thought I should do that and I didn't. Notes should motivate you and excite you. They shouldn't think that you're embarrassed, that you're scared, that you've made a mistake and you need to correct that through, through shame. There's, those are two really different paths to go down. So it, it's all about the notes that empower and, and excite you and make you go, oh, that gives me another idea and I can build on that. And I, and I really want, you know, I, 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 this is my kind of person. So that's, that's really, really, really important. And I've completely forgotten your second question, if there was one. That's okay. That's okay. I was going to say, I could not agree more with you. And I think that is really apt for when you're in the scripting stage and as well as when your movie's done. Like I remember my feature, What We Don't Say, when we were taking that to film mm. festivals and I would do Q&As, like there are things in that movie where a couple things where I was like, I would kill to be able to change this for one reason or another. You can't, right? Um, mm. And when people would say like, oh, well, what about this little thing? I'm like, honestly, that doesn't really bug me. 
and I'm pretty honest with myself. So if mm. I see something in there and I don't like it, and it usually was those things where you just kind of let it slide, then that that's what was truly had like a little bit of a, a hole or mistake or whatever you want to call it in there. So I totally agree with that. Mm. Um, actually, yeah, we were talking about voice, weren't we? The second question was about discovering yeah. and, and refining voice. And, you know, it's a, that's a very, very similar thing, Matt, you know, where and you'll know this, where you, it's all about your motivation and excitement and what gets you going. And, and, and it's, it's this willingness to shamelessly indulge in what you enjoy. And one of the problems we have is that our academic systems and our corporate world, for some reason, we have this illogical mindset that we only deserve reward in exchange for pain and suffering. Mm. Um, and that pain and suffering usually comes in the version of it, it's it's workload, it's exhaustion, it's word count, it's productivity. So what you get is you get a lot of people and they're doing what they think other people are going to be impressed with. So they're posting their word count every day. They're talking about how many scripts they've written. They're, they're talking about how much they're, they're, they're abusing themselves and pushing themselves. And they'll say things like, oh, I threw my first draft away. And then I did my second and I threw that away. And I did 12 drafts. And they, it's like the, 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 the SWAT in class who has to walk in at the end of the coursework, looking the most exhausted and talking about how late they went to sleep in the hope that the teacher notices and gives them an extra grade for effort. <laughs> and good art does not come from the same process. Good art, in my opinion, comes from an absolutely shameless and almost guilt-inducing amount of indulgence and personal pleasure, curiously jumping around within the arena that really excites you. And when you look at your heroes, you'll realise they're doing that. Like, look at Wes Anderson and what he does with his films. Wes Anderson films are incredibly indulgent in what Wes Anderson loves. Mm -hmm. And that's why we love watching them, because we're watching someone really enjoy themselves. Tarantino, exactly the same thing in a completely different world. That's what Spielberg was, you know, was doing, I guess still is doing now. That's what Christopher Nolan is doing. They aren't taking the hardest road possible. They're taking the most pleasurable and exciting world. You know, they're, 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 they're getting into that inner child. Now, if you do that, your voice will come naturally because you're feeding that person that artist within yourself and that artist will feel that they can get past those self-conscious barriers and just express themselves so it's really a kind of like letting the voice out and then you will see it on the page yeah and i think the key word from what you just said to me is exciting like if there's something mm. where you're just like fuck yes yeah then that's yes. something that's worth exploring and i think you're you're rarely going to go wrong if you explore that I agree. I, I, as I say, excitement on the, the more you enjoy your writing, the more people will enjoy the film made from your writing. It is as simple as that. And miserable writing becomes so mediocre and there's so much of it out there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. So let's jump into script revolution. Um, 
let's start with the genesis of it. Like, what was there a moment where you were like, okay, I'm making this? What was the first seed of the idea? There was years of me saying, there's no way I'm making this. There was years of frustration. I come from a mild amount of web development background, you know, simple stuff, WordPress sites and things like that. And I knew enough to know that building a web hosting platform isn't that technically difficult, isn't that technically impossible. It doesn't have huge demands. And, you know, when I first started, I mean, it was 2012, I think it was the end of 2012 that, like, the Blacklist launched and Inktip was on there. And I, I was looking at that and thinking, that's that's not that difficult to replicate. Someone could replicate this for, you know, for free or a much lower cost. And I'm like, I, you know, well, I'm not going to be the guy that does it. I don't want to be the guy. I'm here to write. That's the only thing I want to do. And then these years start to go by and querying really starts to die off as like a successful way to, to connect with producers and start a career and get a script. I mean, you're not going to get a script sold these days, really, but, you know, get assignments. And I started to see people lose hope because they felt exposure came at a cost. They had to enter competitions. They had to buy evaluations. They had to pay for expensive hosting. And it was just grinding away at me. And as someone who was, you know, suffering depression, anxiety and, you know, and everything else, I'm just thinking how many of these people are in a really dark place, really hopelessly dark place that writing was supposed to be getting them out of, not making worse. So I put it off for year after year, 2016, it was July the 4th. I was thinking of the American Revolution and just one of those things like it's weird. Like sometimes you have a story concept, you have the name and for some reason the name just creates all this positive energy. And I just thought script revolution. I registered the domain that day and I just went for it. I asked friends, you know, who are in web development for some tips. I tried a whole host of basic platforms to try and build on. I didn't know what to do with the server hosting. I didn't even know if it could be achieved. And it sounds, I mean, this sounds like a very corny and cliche story, but I, I worked till midnight every day. And by August the 1st, I launched this platform called Script Revolution. And I thought the world was going to stop, dude. I, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to create some waves. And it didn't. <laughs> much but we're f we're nearly five years in and it, it's really started to gain some traction and i've done a, a tremendous amount of work on it yeah i think it's a great platform i was introduced to it by actually an actor writer buddy of mine tim and uh he was like you you just got to check this out it's so great and just on first like glance of it i was like okay this strikes me as something that is and I should say to the audience, like we had, you're not paying me for this or anything. This is strictly just what I think. <laughs> uh, it's like this actually feels like it's for writers. Like, and I think where you mentioned that mentality of writers are feeling a little frustrated because things really feel behind paywalls. I think that's probably only increased since you launched this. So to see something where it's like this feels like something where it was genuinely just like, hey, let's all get together, let's share some scripts, like let's do this in a way where it's not going to, you're not going to look at your credit card every month and be like, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> oh, that's what I felt. You know, I, I, I was thinking about, 
you know, vulnerable people, you know, sort of financially vulnerable people, many, you know, of the blue collar workers out there, the unemployed, the struggling, they have a lot of the best stories to tell. And the concept of pricing those people out just seems absurd to me. You know, and I know what these these other these other websites that run. I have nothing against them, because, you know, they they're built on investment and they have huge teams that run them. I mean, and I say huge relative to me because my entire Script Revolution team is me. Mm-hmm. Everything on Script Revolution is done by me, except shooting the shorts, which I host, which was a separate organization of people which now have found a home on Script Revolution, and it integrates in. Everything else is me. And so, you know, I, I'm lean. I'm so much leaner. But there is this issue that you bring up, and that is so few platforms out there are actually run by writers. So they're not run by people who necessarily understand what it's like to be a writer or in my case, a writer producer. So I have some experience of both sides of the table and I'm really, 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 really happy. My heart fills with joy when people find script revolution and find a home and they're like, this was made for me. This actually feels like someone's done something for me and this art form that we all share. Yeah, and I think that's beautiful. And like you mentioned, it's something that's hard to find online, right? Because you'll meet cynical people around pretty much every turn. So when you can find that, that's gold. Um, what's your hope for Script Revolution? Like if you were to get your wildest dreams to come true with it, what would it be? Uh, the old joke about Script Revolution is I didn't want to run it. I don't like running <laughs> it and there is no plan. Um, it, it is it is 100% organic, um, it is as altruistic as I can make it. Um, there is a paid membership level on there. The members forced me to create one because they were like, CJ, please. I got people saying like, please let me send you some PayPal money. I, I want to con- – because people want to be part of it. That's the thing. They really want to wear it as a badge of honour and be part of this – movement you know the irony of script revolution is it's gradually becoming a revolution it's really starting to 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 happen now and gain momentum so there's there's that side of things as well where 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 people do give me a little bit and believe me it's being needed as it gets bigger because you know all these these additional costs um slowly sneak their way in um but the plan is to just grow and to just get um bigger and bigger and get more results for people and draw in more actual sort of filmmakers and people on the development side to come see what's on there. It used to be very writer heavy and that started to balance out now. Um, The number of members is now higher than the number of scripts. Um, And we're starting to see those success stories come in. Are they big, huge spec sales that are going to buy someone a mansion in Malibu? No, they are not. They are nibbles. They are small nibbles, but they are career starters. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for that tiny little crack that they can get in through. And those filmmakers out there, they're looking for a place they can go and they don't have to, you know, they don't have to feel like that every element, they don't need to give their inside leg measurement. 
you know, for permission to come in and have a look at what's there. So it's it's really, really, really starting to um, to to make a difference. That's awesome. I yeah, good on you for making it. It that's that's awesome. Um, it you. actually segues nicely into that guy that introduced me to Script Revolution, Tim. I told him I was going to inter- interview him, and I was like, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? And he's like, ask CJ what his favorite success story is. I would love to know that. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> Uh, um, crikey! Now that that's an that's an interesting one because you know every single success story is is so special. Um, like for instance, there's a, there's a guy on there called Jerry Robbins who's who's had a, a couple of great success stories now, and he's his um he's had a couple of movies start to get filmed, and he's he's really kind of found, um. You know, success that he wasn't finding elsewhere, but he went and grabbed it because um, because he would see like people asking for scripts in places and he would write them so fast. His energy was absolutely incredible, you know, really kind of open and responsive. But I, I think it was I think it was James Brosnahan, I think it was a really interesting one. I think it was James. Um it could have been James or it could have been somebody else. Let me have a look. I'm having a look on it. It was Gary Piazza. So, you know, yeah, it was Gary Piazza. So he, he so James Brosnahan, he, he, he sold a couple of scripts. It was really quite remarkable. But just after that happened, Gary Piazza came to me and he had a script called Dig Me No Grave. And what was interesting about um, Gary was that he, you know, he kind of, he kind of gave up on a lot of his early material and kind of found re-inspiration to come back and go back to some of his original scripts that had be, that, had, that were from so long ago, like, I think it was over 10 years or something like that, and he had this newfound motivation and he, like, got his first script option after after all this time trying to break in by kind of going back to who he was when he first started. You know, I talked about that first script energy and things like that. And I think that's what Gary did. And he suddenly kind of found traction. And that was a beautiful thing, you know, because I think a lot of people feel that they get lost and then they kind of refine themselves and they refine that... Um, that that original energy that they had and i think it it kind of makes them feel young again you know and it feels like you know they they haven't missed the boat they haven't missed their chance again i know i'm saying this a lot but that is beautiful like that's a super cool story man (laughs) cool cool and there's a few like that yeah i think i think gary was been in this for 30 years I think he's been trying to get into this you know things oh, happening wow. things not happening but you know they're all they're all special in their own way and you know they all the success stories of people who have found the scripts via script revolution they aren't like members that have had success elsewhere or anything like that uh, really sweet 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to ask you about something else you created. You made a production company, Rebel Rouser. Am I saying that correct? Mm, that's correct. It's, 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 it looks incredibly difficult to pronounce, I admit. <laughs> I just figure it's better to ask. Well, it's, uh, rebe- it's Rebel, isn't it? But it's a French spelling. It's a feminine French spelling of Rebel. Yeah. So it looks like Rebel. It's Belle. That's the female element. So it's about, yeah, it's, it's the female side of things. And what made you want to create your own production company? Um, well, I mean, it's it's actually, it just makes sense from a, a logistical point of view, from an economic point of view. I always wanted to have a brand. Rebel Rouser was something that came to me quite a few years back as, as, a, as, as a great name that represented the fact that I like to write stories with you know, the female empowerment and, and strong female characters in the truest sense of word, you know, the strong in character. Um, and they are these rebellious women. Um, so it was, I always wanted the cool name. I'm not going to lie. And who doesn't, who doesn't want a title card on the front of a, of a movie, you know, with their logo and everything. Oh, absolutely. Who doesn't, who doesn't want to do that? And I always like Tarantino's Rodriguez's, you know, Troublemaker Studios and things like that. So I wanted something that really encapsulated the, the, the ethos but um financially economically everything else it makes sense to have a business entity for your writing work because then you have a corporation and the money goes into the corporation and then you can manage that money better um you know you don't as a writer you can have a very fluctuating income and you have to watch out for you know earning significant amount of money in a year you know, it's the old joke, you know, you, you have to make two million to make a million or you have to make five million to make a million. Because if you aren't careful, you the, the tax consequences and everything else can be really, really high. Well, if you have a corporation, you can you can get paid into a corporation and then you can pay yourself a, a more sustainable sort of regular income from that and even everything out. So it just makes sense from that point of view as well. Absolutely. Um, and also, you know, IMDb, being able to have a prodco on there, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, one, it's one part ego, one part logic. And, and like two parts cool, like you mentioned. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Absolutely. Um, so I want to circle a little bit back to writing again real quick. So mm. one question that I'm actually dying to ask you, um, what's something do you think that writers put too much stock into? And just to give you an example, I know a lot of writers that I tend to see, they tend to obsess over routines. Like, when do you write? When okay. do you do this? And I'm always like, who cares, man? Just mm. write when it's good for you. Like, what kind of uh, divots do you find writers fall into? Um, it's it's more often than not it's it's this rules mindset and mostly how that rules mindset applies to a very superficial side of the script i find so many writers are obsessed with how the script looks and it's 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 this because the thing is it's very easy to write a script that looks like a script or write a document that looks like a script and i think people can really get off on that and they'll print it out and they'll hug it and they will put you know the the little binders th- through and you know and, and the brads and and they'll paint it they'll, they'll print it on the right stock paper and, and they've oh i'm a proper proper writer now i'm a filmmaker now you know look at me and 
they will obsess over whether or not they should have blow up bold slug lines, how many lines should be in an action paragraph, um, what's the maximum number of lines of dialogue they should use. Adverbs, oh no, I've not used any adverbs, I'm a better writer than you. And, and, and all this kind of nonsense and hoopla, which is never, ever, ever verified in professional scripts or the best scripts out there. They always seem to go against this thinking. But then there's this this, this obsession with, and people will be so proud of themselves, and they'll say, I, I never I never write um, dialogue more than three lines, and I, I never write action more than four lines, and always fade in and always fade out, and I use final drafts, so all my formatting's perfect. And it's just such a distraction from the real heart and content of what really matters. And if people say to me something like, well, I'd never hand a script in with a typo. And I'm like, dude, like, do you realise, like, how, like, firstly, like, impossible that probably is for the average human being to achieve? Secondly, if someone does achieve that and a producer reads it and it hasn't got one typo in... I think most producers are going to go, how long has this person sat polishing this? How long has this person <laughs> sat on their ass obsessing about their, their spelling on this? Did, no one wants that. That's not what makes a great writer. What great makes a great writer is they constantly, quickly turn around really entertaining, makeable, high production value material that, that gets people, you know, with their heartstrings and gets them excited. And none of this nonsense about formatting achieves that. And the thing is, a lot of people would say, oh, well, CJ, you know, um, you know, it's just formatting. Surely you should increase the odds. And I agree with the principle of that. You wouldn't want to do... I mean, I, I actually do do things to put people off, to polarise them. I've got <laughs> illustrations on the front page of my scripts. I'm like, you're either in or you are out, my friend. If you get upset because I've got an illustration on the front of my script, why would I want to work with you? You're boring as hell. I don't want to work with someone like that. Where's the fun? So I do actually polarise people. But, you know, there's this, this attitude of, of like, well, if it's formatted better, it stands a higher chance. And I agree with that in principle. The problem is there are these areas that's really debatable i mean for instance everyone loves a good monologue port fiction has got a two-page monologue in you know the whole thing about the the pocket watch and christopher walken it's like so you're saying to me you would never write an incredibly good monologue in a script because you have this i don't know this five line rule like i don't get that i don't get why someone would would restrict themselves in such a pedantic way and then go out and be so proud about it like i i it's like it's like you're painting and you're having a like everyone's having fun and then this one person goes well i always use a certain size canvas and i only use three colors and i always use a paintbrush that's 12 inches long and and i always i use a ruler for every line it's just like you dude you're not the one having any fun you're the <laughs> one that's obsessed you're the one that isn't painting you're you're obsessed about the introspection about the technicality of painting and it's just it's just ridiculous and and every year these these scripts they win the call or people get hold of production scripts from really successful highly critically acclaimed films and they lose their minds and they're saying oh my did you see the montage the way the montage was formatted you're not allowed to do that and there'll, be, and there'll be stuff like, there's illustrations in the middle of the script. That's illegal. Why wasn't the writer <laughs> arrested on the spot? 
and beaten to a pulp for, for, for betraying all these rules we've invented ourselves. And I'm like, I, it frustrates me and it angers me, as you can tell, I'm passionately and I'm animated right now about this. But the thing is, I'm kind of done with it now. And I'm like, you know what? If you're dumb enough and boring enough and dusty enough and beige enough that you're just going to go down that road where you obsess about that and you just go around on the internet picking at the first three pages of other people's scripts because of typos. And I'm so disappointed about script notes on this, by the way. I'm so disappointed to hear this attitude that script notes now have brought in where they won't accept three pages if they have a typo in. Like, I'm just, I'm not sure what that what that's achieving in any way at all. Um, I'm very vocal about that. And, and, I, I, and just do it. It's like, yeah, go off and do it. Go off and do it because you ain't going to be making any fun little ragtag indie movies anytime soon with that with that attitude like can you imagine <laughs> so that is something that's driven me crazy for 10 years nearly and only i think three days ago i saw a thread of, you know an innocently positively started thread on a forum saying what are the rules you have and then of course all these rules pour in from people and I went on there and I said hey the only rule I have is that I have fun because that means it'll be more fun to watch and felt very proud of myself <laughs> yeah I couldn't agree more I remember once meeting with a producer he had read my entire script and I was like so what'd you think and the first thing he said was like you have some camera direction in here you can't do that I'm like oh. why not and he's like well that's usually for the director and in this case I was like I am the director He's like, yeah, well, you should still shouldn't do that. And just from right there, I was like, I'm never working with this person. <laughs> like, oh, man. Not going to oh, happen. Oh, man. Run a mile. Can you, ima- like, can you imagine how that person's going to treat the marketplace? How that person's going to try and get to the audience? How that person's going to... Their attitude to everything is going to be so restrictive. It's a real kind of can't-do attitude. And, you know, producers like that, there is a lot of producers out there. I'm going to steal a phrase from Shane Stanley, so copyright Shane Stanley. Um, and he says, you know, there's a lot of producers out there who can't produce a shadow on a sunny day. <laughs> and what they love to do is they love to read scripts and give their opinion on story as if they're story experts, but they're not writing. For some reason, they need to go to writers to get scripts. And, you know, they 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 want to enforce this nonsense. My One of the greatest things I had was this working relationship and now being a producing partner and having that empowerment because being able to just willy-nilly write we see whip pans cut to smash cut slow fps back to normal speed you know all those fun things have just made my scripts light up um and i i'm so i used to do it quite a bit before but now i just really indulge and i love that freedom i have uh, I, I'm not submitting to some judges in some script competition. I'm submitting to a director. I want to get them excited. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that brings another story to mind. I have I had this script that someone was reading. And for some reason, when I wrote this line of description, it was kind of punny and it made me laugh. Mm. So I just wrote like, huh, that made me laugh, like a little alteration on that. Mm. And the producer wrote, read it and he's like, you should really take that out. No one's going to take you seriously. And I was like, well, have you ever read the script for Lethal Weapon? 
And he's like, no. Mm. And I'm like, Shane Black used to do that all the time. In mm. Lethal Weapon, his description of a house is, if this movie hits big, this is the kind of house I'm going to buy. And then it hit big, <laughs> and then he bought that house. I'm like, so it, it can be done. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it can't be done. Well, this is, this is voice. This is, this is attitude. This is personality. And generally speaking, people who actually make movies really want to work with like-minded people, people who are fun and exciting, who have a strong personality. Uh, you, do you have to have the storytelling skills and the craft skills to back it up? A hundred percent, absolutely. That's your job is to... And it's funny how many people want to be so servile, yet have all these rules. But yeah, people want to work with people who are fun. Um, you can put that on the page. I put that on the page all the time. I've got little comments, you know, sorry, dude, or what a creep, or, mm-hmm. you know, this is kick-ass, and... You know, Shane Black, he had stuff like, this is where the audience will pull their dicks out and start jerking off. Like, he, <laughs> he really went for it. And guess what? You know, he's still got it now. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one of the best movies I've watched in a, in a long time, personally. And it's that kind of fun personality that you bring to the table. And, yeah, people want to crush that. And I don't get why they want to do that. And we have, we have scripts that go off to high-profile talent with these jokes and comments and whatever within the prose and people frigging love it. I, I, you know, Shane used to run a production company with Charlie Sheen and Mm -hmm. Charlie Sheen got pulled in by a script once because the opening prose about, I think it was a guy breaking into a house was written in that way. It was written in that, in that way where it was like, Oh, sorry, dude, or careful dude, or whoops, that was a mistake something like that and and charlie was like i love this This is one of i want to get involved in this this guy's this guy's got a personality so in my case it's always pulled people in and yeah i mean at the end of the day you know i went from so many people tearing into my work and telling me i couldn't write or i was a bad writer and then one day i'm standing in the old pimp my ride workshop surrounded by (laughs) supercars and muscle cars you know, in, in, in Van Eyes and Steve Gutenberg's in front of me. And, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is like this guy. This guy's a hero of mine. And he signed on via a tip off from Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I'm getting starstruck in this moment. And I walk up. It's the first time I got starstruck on set. And I shake his hand. I'm like, Hi, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, hey, here's CJ, here's the writer. You know, I shake his hand. He looks me in the eye and he goes great script i love the pacing and i'm like fuck everyone who ever said i couldn't write or i wasn't any good steve gutenberg just validated me like i don't i don't care now like i wish not that i don't care i wish i hadn't cared mm-hmm. i wish i hadn't given up at least twice because of some prick on a forum who just wanted to knock me down to build themselves up who who those people now from 9 and Nine and a half years ago, when I first started, those people, I go back and they're still there, get angry in a corner, lashing out at people. They haven't gone anywhere. And they were the ones that told me I wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's awesome that you actually went somewhere. But it's it speaks more to like how you said just having fun, right? Like Mm. when even when you're talking about putting just a little joke in a script, like a lot of the times reading scripts can be so black and white and it's not that they'll have bad stories or anything. It's just when you have that same formatting and everything's really serious and whatnot, you know, it's bound to look 
the same to things that are exactly mm. like that. But when you put little jokes in there, just like the little flair you can give. And when yeah. I read stuff like that, I'm like, this person's having fun and it makes me smile. And now I'm more invested in the script. And that's not to say do it, you know, every line has to have one of those or anything, but it really does give it some personality. And like you mentioned, that is kind of, that can be one facet of your voice as well, right? I, put, I, I say put confidence on the page um and little things like that done well really can show it um i i think oddly so there was a few scripts that i just focused on quite a lot when i first got into writing i think people would laugh if they knew what they were but it was born identity by tony gilroy another one was twilight and oh, no Lisa rosenberg um you know because i one? thought well because it was completely different it was because, well, also because I'm kind of interested in the script that launched a billion dollar franchise. Like, I, I just yep. think it's weird. Like, people will people will dismiss something which has had a revolutionary impact on a marketplace. Like, Twilight's one of the biggest things that happened at the turn of the century in terms of film. Like, it was just, it came out of nowhere. It was a completely new audience that people weren't addressing who were obsessed about this. And it, you know, and it built in a really healthy way and i'm i i want to i want to get to the crux of stuff and the development process behind that film was fantastic it was very positive Catherine hardwick working with steph mayer and melissa rosenberg and yes this is a guy who likes to write pulpy tarantino style scripts talking about twilight <laughs> and how it got made but the script's really well written and um you know it has it has these little things like um edward um, looks at um, Bella like she has a bowler, and there are these, and he's devastatingly handsome, describes things like that. And there's this really nice way that it's written with personality, and I really like that. And then obviously, you jump into Tony Gilroy's Born Identity. You know, his action scenes are incredible, and he's like, oh, the guy's on the floor, blood everywhere, he's completely fucked. And he's even got a bit like where he says, um, there's, here's two action sequences depending on budget and gives them two variations of the action sequence. You know, he says, like, this section is if you've got a higher budget. And, like, I was just really kind of pulled in by by that. And that really got me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did, a, <laughs> you know, I, I, I focused on the scripts that spoke to me from, not from the content, but from the voice of the writer. And, you know, people will sit there and they'll talk about adverbs, but flow, rhythm, you know, the music of well-written prose and the impact that has on people, that's what really pulls people in and makes them enjoy something. It can be very simple language, but when it's expressed with soul, that really inspires and connects people. Yeah, and you can just feel it too. Like it, it radiates through the page, which is, is beautiful, you know? Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I actually have one question that I think not enough writers ask themselves, and I'm very curious to hear your answer. Like, there's tons of writers out there, like millions, tens of millions people that want to be screenwriters, right? Hmm. Do you think they, the average person would enjoy being a full-time screenwriter? Because like you mentioned, it's not just writing, right? Like, it's working within this ensemble, taking notes, you know, being under hmm. the crunch, all of that stuff. So do you think the average person would enjoy it as much as they think they would? I don't think the average person who wants to be a screenwriter would enjoy the reality of the screenwriting profession that they chase, okay? There are 
all these writers out there and they want to write within the union for the studios, for development execs within the majors or the mini majors. And none of them seem to have actually read their history um, and studied what that side of the business is like. It is the harshest, toughest, most cutthroat area. It's only recently been superseded by TV production and writers' rooms, um, a.k.a. going into the tube and effectively living in a bunker with no life indefinitely till you hopefully get to the other side still alive. And they seem to be quite willing to sign up for a life of pain where they are, they've got tight, horrible deadlines for tough people who are going to forget about them a week later in a lot of cases, constant pitching and getting nowhere, being rewritten, having tons of contrasting notes, being an incredibly small fish in an enormous ocean. And they seem to chase this with every, every ounce of passion that they have. And, and, Yes, there are people who survive it, get through it, thrive within it. In some cases, um, Jonathan Nolan's a good example of someone who just, you know, he's an obsessive writer who just, he, he, can't, he went into TV because he wanted to write tougher and harder, you know, than, than ever before. You know, some people do thrive in that environment. But most people, you know, they, they want to swim with the sharks, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> with, still with the armbands on. And I, I just don't get that. I think if more people knew about how wonderful the indie side can be when you have a really, really kind, healthy team where you're autonomous, where you are funded independently and you just go out and have fun. I don't get notes on my scripts. What happens is, is Shane and I jump on Skype. We go through it together we're laughing, rolling around on the floor at stuff. He, he'll make some typo corrections. We'll tweak the... He's, a, he's great with dialogue. He'll tweak some of the dialogue in places. Um, we will run into some logistical issues and say, oh, yeah, OK, we can't do that, so we're going to have to make a change. Or we have an opportunity somewhere, we're going to jump on it. It's I, The first time I, I submitted... Like, it was the first act of my first script for Shane to have a look at. I was terrified. I thought I'm going to get chewed to shreds. This guy, you know, he's done a number one. He's worked with some of the top people in the business. I, I, this is going to be horrible. And it was wonderful. It was so refreshing. I Second act, didn't believe it was going to be as good. It was, just got better and better. So, I, you know, I don't live in a world of harsh notes and losing a credit of you know, not never, you know, having an invoice unpaid for an extended num amount of time, not seeing the movie until it's released and then realising that they changed so much. Like, I don't, I don't live in that world because I don't choose to go anywhere near that world. So I think the average person, would they enjoy it? <sighs> if they, if they have found their passion, they will enjoy it because their passion will carry them through. I ain't saying it's always easy. Life never is. There are some tough times you go through. There are times when you and your production team desperately want to do something. You want to make the words reality and you can't. You know, you have to go through that. But um, the camaraderie is what will carry you through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
that's really true or it gets even more true the less money you have like when you just have a really solid team and you're like look we got to make this happen somehow it's stressful and you know there's a lot on the line but at the same time it's it's where you know everyone comes together and it really just starts becoming something and it's a great feeling oh dude you get over those challenges and you know there's an old there's an old theory i i not sh- exactly sure where it comes from but it's the it's a theory of what good did indulgence do anybody who has ever benefited from indulgence indulgence in you know in terms of like money and resources i mean here not in terms of creative expression but in money and resources like if you have an unlimited supply of chocolate you don't end up happier you end up more miserable because all you do is you gorge yourself on chocolate and then wonder why you aren't like why you feel so bad <laughs> and and that's that's the human that's the human condition we're not we're not built for excess so there is a theory within the development side that um, more money can quite often result in um, a, a poorer result or, or, or a less enjoyable experience. Um, yes, people will point to the likes of James Cameron and they'll say, well, hang on a second, that dude had like 100 million to make. So he made Titanic for 200 million or 300, I can't remember. Um, but he went in with half the budget. So he was actually, in all fairness, didn't have enough money. He went in with not enough money. So, And that's the same with Coppola and Scorsese and a whole load of other people as well. They actually, most cases, were uh, were having to make it work with what they'd got. Yeah, definitely. I mean, watch Hearts of Darkness. Like, that entire thing is Francis Ford Coppola just saying, like, how the fuck am I going to do this? we gotta, we got to find out how we're going to do this. And it's inspiring. Oh, it is. And I wish people, again, go back to the 1970s, the auteur revolution, read about what your heroes really went through. Look at how Spielberg was a laughing stock for a while, completely written off because of, you know, his early films were just, you know, sorry, not Spielberg, I'm thinking of Lucas there, you know, but Spielberg went through a rough patch as well. I mean, you know, like he, he wasn't critically acclaimed in Hollywood after Jewel. That was that was that was a B movie that was done incredibly well. Like and and when Jaws came out, it was like, why is this guy making high budget B movies? I mean, Roger Corman knew what he was doing and was like, oh crikey, they're onto my game now. I'm done for. <laughs> and and that's what those guys did is they they actually took quite a kind of childish route and and made it work after kind of failing in in quite a few ways. You look at Coppola's life, you know, with. He was working on Corman films left, right and centre and he ended up going back to San Francisco and kind of giving up after they, you know, they, he tried to make things work for Lucas and Spielberg as that team. And I just wish people would go and, and look at that and look at things like Easy Rider and, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the film, but I'm a huge fan of how it got made and what those people did. You know, Dennis Hopper and, yeah, and definitely. Um, Fonda. And I think... One of the things you're touching on, and I think it's very, very underrated, is that failure is going to make you so much better than you were before. Like, I think there's a lot of fear when you sit down to write a script or you go to make your first thing or whatnot. Like, well, what if it sucks? And it's like, Hmm. um, don't really worry about it. Like, if it sucks, you're going to look at it and say, this sucks. And you're going to kind of emotionally and mentally dissect it and say, okay, well, this little bit worked. So I, I like that. And then the things that didn't work, I realized that that's part of what i tried this and it didn't work so i won't do that again and you will really Mm. become better through failure 
You should do. I mean, no one really... It's very difficult to write something that actually genuinely sucks. Like, mm. it's really... Like, you... Like, the only way to write something that sucks is to write something that's so incredibly grey and mediocre that it provokes zero emotional response whatsoever. Like, and I have seen some very cold and robotically written scripts that, you know, are just, like, they clunk through, but it's that's usually, like... That's when you lose your inspiration. That's when you, you're writing in, under tremendous fear. Generally speaking, if, if you are... If your elements of your script really suck, it, that's probably because you're trying and you're doing something right. It's just that you you kind of like miss the bullseye and you've got to sort of rein things back in. Or maybe you're trying to fuse two things together that shouldn't be trying to be fused together. Um, there's, there's, there's that side of things as well. And, and yeah, OK, you might execute something in, in the wrong way, but I absolutely agree. There should be no fear of failure. You no one nobody gets it right the first time um you know tarantino was trying to make uh, my best friend's birthday before things happened with dogs and you know he was he was renting equipment on a friday because it meant that he, he got to keep it all weekend and return it on a monday he was shooting on 35 millimeter um working with roger avery and he if you so the funny thing is when tarantino did dogs um he was sent to the sundance institute to do some directing work because there was this claim that he'd never made a film before or tried to um and then there was a claim that the the um, film stock had all been destroyed i don't know and I'm not saying I know exactly what happened, but by some miracle, the content is now available on YouTube. So I don't know how that was recovered. You know, like, so I'm just saying that there's always a slim chance, possibly, that it was buried. And no one wanted to bring it up because it would have hurt his chances. Because, wow, you know, he acts in it and he's got that energy and the dialogue is energetic and remarkable and the voice is strong but it you wouldn't look at it and think that's the guy who would go on and do dogs or pulp fiction what happened was he became empowered by people around him so he could just focus on the writing and more than anything sally mendez and her incredible editing telling him what you know what needed to be cut out working with incredibly talented actors and their little sort of tweaks um so you look at his early stuff and you go, that guy went through a lot of failure, really. More failure than perhaps it looks like when, when you see the finished edited result. So I think even looking at your heroes, you will see people who have gone through a tough time, who have, who have failed on the way in some ways. Yeah, definitely. I'm a huge uh, heavy metal fan, and it reminds me of the band Pantera. When they broke through, they said, like, we would turn on MTV and hear overnight sensation Pantera. And they were like, we've been doing this for eight years in the clubs. <laughs> like, we are not overnight at all. And I think there's a lot of that. Like, what you don't see is just a lot of, you know, them failing, them learning to be themselves, and then learning to be good. Well, that's the old saying, isn't it? It takes a decade to become an overnight success. And, um, yeah, that's that's what we do. And if, I, I think it's great if you're into bands 
that's a particularly interesting area because yeah, by the time most people have bought their breakout, you know, and breakout album, you know, there's there's three or four albums prior to that. And um that's the reality of artists being discovered. There's some there's some great um some books out there on my website. I have this thing called the on Script Revolution, I have this thing called the Turn and Burn Screenwriting Guide. And that's got some book recommendations in. And some of them, you know, things like Hitmakers is a good book. It talks about, you know, how things become popular and that road that gets them there. And, you know, it isn't always a meritocracy. And overnight success is definitely not not a thing. And, yeah, most people kind of struggle their way along, have a lot of failure, and then kind of get lucky um, and and they align with other people that empower them or they hit the audience at the right moment and that creates this search, this, this huge reaction. So I think if people, were, if people read more about how art gets discovered or how artists get discovered, they would have a lot more faith in themselves. Yeah, I completely agree, completely agree. Um, so I just want to touch on your movies real quick here because we mm-hmm. cannot let you go without touching on them oh, uh, so break you. even was your first one and you have a mm. second one double threat which will be coming out this year right that's the hope um the, you know the pandemic has been problematic that said we dude double threat we we conceptualize that and in, in mid-september 2020 um we had a meeting and decided we were going to do it. We were wrapped on principle by mid-December. That's we, amazing. We, yeah, I, I wrote it in six days. Um, we went into production, I think, mid-November or early November. And, yeah, we, we were wrapped in, in mid-December. So three months from, from you know, con- concept all the way to um, post, effectively. Um it's been tough getting it through post. The editing process is, is always um, one that you want to get right and not mm-hmm. rush through. Um, the hope is, I mean, we will have it ready. There's no doubt about that. It's just the time it takes to get the deal that you want and when your distributor decides they're going to, to launch. That that's the other one. When's the best time to go? So I would love to say it's definitely going to come out this year. I don't know. I mean, it will definitely be done. That's for sure. I hope it comes out. It should be too, man. Me too. Uh, that's one. <laughs> it's thing. a lot of fun. It's that's a lot of fun. One that thing maybe. that I think like filmmakers don't really, and I know I didn't really tip, put enough stock in before, like distribution, and mm. it's a lot of work to go in. Like, there's so much finite stuff. It's headache inducing but then like just like you mentioned the talk of when's the best time to release this like we got our deal in december 2019 and it was Mm. another seven eight months before it came out just because it's like this is a summer movie this is when we should do it you know it's it's a waiting game to say the least yeah you've got the summer movie thing you've got you know when you know perhaps one of your leads is is in a big tv show or something like that that's just coming out and you want to sort of ride on the tails of that um you know we had things like we had a dead pic we had a hot pixel issue and a dead pixel issue on we use a we use a, a, a multi not a multi-camera set, we use a two-camera setup for coverage when we shoot and one of the cameras it was the b cam 
Um, I think it, we kept finding hot pixels and dead pixels on it that hadn't been picked up during the shoot. And, you know, and That's it was, rough. like I say, we run and gun, and I'm not blaming anyone for that. These things sometimes, they don't, they just, they don't stand out till afterwards. And, you know, the nature of how we were, were processing our dailies, you know, and our IT, it just, it, it just wasn't going to get spotted. And, you know, it became like weeks of trying to get these pixels sorted because it just felt like every time one got fixed another popped up and then of course you go through quality control if you've got a good distribution deal or you're aiming for a good distribution deal quality control's tough like there's just stuff pops up out of nowhere on that that you've got to address we had with break even we you know green screening was quite difficult because the way we shot green screen and 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 you know how that aligned with who we were were processing that with um, and then, like, for instance, our distributor wanted to get us into Walmart. Well, you know, you you have to wait for a meeting. That has to be approved by Walmart, which is really, really difficult to do. Um, if you're going on DVD, DVDs need to be, you know, mastered and ready to print. So, the, you know, there was a lot of mechanics that have to come into, into play. Um, and then your distributor, well, they've got a roster of films, um, they're going to get round to yours when they can fit it within the others. They have a slate, effectively. So again, you know, people people need to realise that one of the one of the tough things about shooting a film, what I found, is that your friends are constantly like, "When's it coming out? When's it coming out?" <laughs> and you're like, you, "You, there's so much we have to do. There's so much." And they, of course, they all think it's going to come out in the the movie theatre. Yep. Yeah. When we finished what we don't say, like we wrapped it, and the next week my buddy's like, "So when can I watch it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, like two years," and it yeah. it, it just blew their minds, which you know is fair. They're not filmmakers, but uh, yeah, and yeah, that Walmart thing. We did a DVD DVD run for our movie as well, and I yeah. remember we started going down the Walmart path, and it's mm. just so much red tape, and I was eventually just like, "Screw it, I don't want to do Walmart." Like this is too yeah, much of a headache. Yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's that funny thing, isn't it? When you're a consumer before you get into film, you'll walk into Walmart and kind of scoff at the DVD aisle and like, oh, you know, look at this. I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna win an Oscar and I'm gonna be on every cinema screen. And then you realise how hard it is just to get there. Mm-hmm. And that that really brings you back down to earth. Yeah, in a good way. In a good way. Definitely. You know, I'm I'm enormously proud of break even is is the first film i wrote everything went against us during production you know we we you know you some people joke you know sometimes you have just a cursed film and break even it was like we we, we had things like food poisoning where we lost half the crew what? for a day we we had a car catch fire on the first turn of our car chase we had our yacht on the way back lose power didn't have any stabilizers and we were lost in the Pacific, almost having to call out the Coast Guard. We still shot three scenes, but you know it was. But but you know the impact that had when we couldn't use it for later scenes. We were rewriting on the fly, throwing away pages. It was just unbelievable. It was like every day was just like, what's the worst can happen? It's like we'd angered the gods of film somehow. Um, so yeah, I mean just. The old joke about break even, and you might feel this way about your own film, and I think a lot of people do. It 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 comes in like Memphis Bell, you know. It flies in riddled with bullets. The engine shut down on the approach, 
smoke pouring out of every engine cowl and you hit the runway, the landing gear collapses, you skid to a halt and the whole thing explodes. Like, it just makes it in. And you're just like, I can't believe we landed this. <laughs> and of course, other people are like, yeah, you, you know, your green screen's like this and your SFX are like that and this doesn't make sense here. And it's like, you, sir, you have no idea what we went through here. Go and make your own film and see what see what it's like. Yeah, that's one thing. Like making movies that before it was like you'd watch a bad movie and you're like, how could they make something that shitty? But then you make a movie and you're like, even the worst movie is so hard to make. So oh, hard. I just I, I, I think film if I see a filmmaker criticize another filmmaker's film. I'm just immediately skeptical about whether or not they actually make anything themselves. It's the same with writers now. I think the one of the most toxic things you can say to people who work in the industry is to say, "Why do all films suck?" And these <laughs> days, you know, and you're kind of like, "No, no, no. That's not firstly that's not true and secondly you don't appreciate how hard it is to make a film." I mean, one of the huge problems we 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 had with break even is we shot a, I think it was a 130-page script. Um, my scripts tend to run 10% over. Um, we ended up with, I think the first cut was like two and a half hours long or something, oh, wow. three. Um, and, and we thought we could do 120 minutes, but because we wanted a TV deal, because we wanted to fit, you know, within these screenings at the trade shows... It, it became apparent to us that 93 minutes was the absolute max. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we've got, we've got distributors, well, we've got, we've got a sales agent that keeps us, keeps us in line. And we were told you either get it right or we cut it, you know, because, because, mm-hmm. because it's our responsibility to sell this and we're not taking on a film we can't sell. So we ended up having to cut so much um, out to get in within this kind of standard size. The good thing is some of it made it into the DVD extras, and it's always good to have some of your DVD extras. But um, it made me appreciate, um, from a writer's point of view, like, you need to be careful with references and callbacks in scenes because you that can really <laughs> limit you <laughs> later on when you're like, hang on a second, he's referencing something that isn't there anymore. So um, now I'm really, really, really conscious i i write a 90 page script um we tend to go you know i could say 10 percent over so i know that we're probably going to cut 10 minutes um and i'm really happy with the timings we've come in on this latest one we have learned a great deal from those failings like you say um and i think that's going to carry us carry us through quite nicely yeah absolutely both the things you just said like trying to hit 90 minutes it really is kind of just this like I don't want to say gold standard, but this sweet spot, like, cause you can play at anything when you're 90 minutes and your film, you know, mm. it'll have more chances when you are just around there. Um, and yeah, the callbacks, like, I think if you have mm. a, a couple that are like awesome, leave them in. But if mm. you have 10 and you lose mm. four of them in the edit, whether or not people pick up on it, is it a different thing? But to the writer, it'll be like, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. I was really happy with the result. I was scared going in and, 
you know, as I, 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 I like I said, I messaged Shane when it was done, and I was like, you know, a lot of this doesn't make sense, but it's freaking awesome, dude. It's an absolute blast, and everyone who's watched it is just like, oh, this is so much fun, and they've never said, hey, what about this, or hey, what about that? And, of course, you're ultra-sensitive to it. Um, but, yeah, that 90-minute thing, I, I see it as, like, the... It's the ISO shipping container of the film world, and it's like... Yes, you can make a, con a container that's a little bit wider or a little bit longer, but it ain't going to fit on the boat. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem because nobody cares. And there's so many filmmakers who think they're this special exception and they don't realise. And I'm not, I don't believe in that whole, you know, this person gets to break the rules, whatever, that person, whatever. But when you're competing within this highly competitive marketplace you have to have a competitive product. And this is one of the elements that makes it competitive, compatibility, flexibility. And yes, if you've got a TV deal, that's potentially going to be huge. And you want those all around the world. That You might need a TV deal to, act, to trigger a theatrical deal or a global distribution deal. These things can fall over like dominoes. So yeah, um, lesson learned well and truly on that one. Um, and I'm glad to say that we've we've proven that we've learned from that one. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited to check out whenever Double Threat comes out. I'm excited to check it out. Oh, dude, Double Threat is a ton of fun. We just we just played in the dirt. We have got we have got a fight scene, dude. Wow, I wrote it, and I and I was, I was like, I wrote it as this kind of extremely like turn it up to 11 the most ridiculous vision you can possibly have of this like the dream the whole you know the whole dream thing and you know and i based it on like cynthia rothrock back in the, you know, the 80s and 90s <laughs> and her kung, kung fu stuff because of female lead and they like took it and ran with it and then took it up another notch like we have this amazing fight scene and i'm like i never I dreamt I'd have that at some point, but we have it. And it's really, it's a really weird sensation. That's awesome. Are you allowed to say where you are with it? Like, do you have lock picture? Uh, we're very close to that. We, we have a, I think it's a 95 minute edit or something like that. Right, right now we are close. We've got it. We, we work with Tommy Fields, who's this amazing composer. We have um, a band, a, an awesome band from, from the nineties. Um, who were really big, who had a number one album, and we've got some of their stems, and they're going to let us use some of their music from a from a little project they did on the side, which has just got this awesome, like, 90s vibe, which is so on the money right now, and really <laughs> takes me back to those fun old indie films. And we're going to play around with that and bring it in. It's got a real punk attitude. So, yeah, we, we you know, we're colouring SFX, everything else. Who, who knows what we're going to run into, but, yeah, we're in a really good place. That's awesome. I'm very excited. Um, so for people that listen to this and want to get in touch with you, Script Revolution, do you have the socials? The, 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 the what, sorry? Social media? The socials. Okay, then. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, at Script um, Rev on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, um, CJ underscore Wally, um, CJWally.com. If you go to scriptrevolution.com, you're going to find all the links you need to take you in different places. Um, we're on LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn's getting nice and busy right now. And there's a, a Script Revolution Facebook page. Come join in on there as well. But, um, you know, it's a contained little community. 
Um, got our own little world day. Everyone's welcome to come join in on. We're not really, not really all over Twitter and things like that. Mm. I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on the show. This was a an excellent episode, and I think people are really going to dig it. Dude, it's been a tremendous amount of fun. I love doing things like this. And, you know, thank you so much for reaching out, inviting me on. And, you know, a lot of people, they aren't aware of Script Revolution. They aren't spreading the good word. You know, you've got to be pretty switched on. So it's so good that you're ahead of the curve on this and letting your listeners know about a potentially fantastic opportunity for them. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. And thanks again for being on. Cheers, Matt. I really appreciate it. Bye. Talk to you soon.